Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, the real first Thanksgiving happened in Florida 55 years before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. Father Francisco Lopez, the fleet chaplain, soon to be first pastor of the first parish, came ashore ahead of Pedro Menendez Aviles, the leader of the founding expedition, and um, then went forward to meet Menendez holding a cross. We'll discuss suffragist hero Mary Nolan. A 73-year-old Jacksonville grandmother who went to jail not once, but at least seven times for her support of the right of women to vote. And we'll talk with Tom Touchton about his extensive collection of Florida maps. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Eminent Florida historian Michael Gannon was author or editor of 10 books, including The Cross in the Sand from 1965. In that book, Dr. Gannon demonstrated how the real first Thanksgiving happened in St. Augustine in 1565, decades before the pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. A longtime professor of history at the University of Florida in Gainesville, Dr. Gannon taught several generations of Florida historians who are working in the state today. Gannon was formerly a Catholic priest and was working in St. Augustine in the early 1960s as the town was preparing to commemorate their 400th anniversary and the real first Thanksgiving. Dr. Gannon died in April 2017, but we spoke with him in 2015 as St. Augustine was preparing to recognize their 450th anniversary. There were a number of individual and institutional contributions to the 400th anniversary, and then there was a citywide coordinating committee that oversaw a lot of other activity collectively. As far as the Catholic Church is concerned, there were two major products of our efforts. I say I, being a priest historian with the Diocese of St. Augustine at the time. First at the Old Mission, uh, where the first parish mass was celebrated on September 8, 1565, it was decided to build a cross because that was central to the original ceremony where Father Francisco Lopez, the fleet chaplain, soon to be first pastor of the first parish, came ashore ahead of Pedro Menendez Aviles, the leader of the founding expedition, and um, then went forward to meet Menendez holding a cross. And Menendez came on land, knelt, and kissed the cross. And so uh, Archbishop Joseph P. Hurley of the Diocese of St. Augustine thought it best to highlight the church's contribution by the erection of a very large cross. 
and ultimately it was constructed of stainless steel and rose to a height of 208 feet. I think it is still the tallest freestanding cross in the Western Hemisphere. And I think it's very impressive. It, uh, it's stately, it has a wonderful design that was done by an architectural firm in Boston, Massachusetts. It um, can be seen 14 miles out to sea and it's grown among and upon uh, the people who live in this community and has become a symbol of the first mission to the North American natives and the first parish erected by Europeans in this country. Also part of St. Augustine's 400th anniversary was the construction of a contemporary church called the Prince of Peace and a bridge linking the church with the historic mission grounds. Plans were made for a library and research center on the property, but funding was not available. Today, visitors to the mission site can also see the statue of Father Francisco Lopez. That statue was erected in the 1950s. It was executed by a distinguished Yugoslav sculptor, Ivan Mestrovich. But it was placed in a copse of trees where it did not stand out against a dark background. And uh, the plan that the architects in 1965 came forward with was to move it to a site on open ground where the figure of Father Lopez with his arms in the air would stand out against the sky. And now, at long last, the statue has been moved to that space, and you can see the dramatic difference in uh, the figure of Father Lopez as he's seen completely and clearly now against uh, the sky, and directly in front of the cross, which stands behind him. As the Spanish began exploring and colonizing Florida, the Reformation movement was underway in Europe. Martin Luther, John Calvin, Henry VIII, and other Reformation leaders were protesting various practices of the Catholic Church and forming Protestant religions. In an effort to maintain its power and influence, the Catholic Church launched the Counter-Reformation. Part of that effort was to send Catholic missionaries around the world, including the New World of Florida. Michael Gannon explains that Spanish imperialism and Catholicism were inextricably linked. The two efforts were coterminous. Uh, everywhere uh, Spain moved politically and economically and militarily, the church moved too. The church was always a, a partner of Spanish expansion. And indeed, some of the great expansion of the church through her mission system preceded the advance of other elements of Spanish society. And uh, you can certainly see that in the interior missions of Florida during the 17th century where missions stood out in the wilderness apart from all of the other examples of Spanish colonial existence. And the friars of the Franciscan order lived very lonely lives servicing their people. So the church was in the forefront. If, uh, if, if, if you want to uh, uh, select any part of the Spanish cultural presence in Florida and the rest of the Spanish provinces of North America, you would have to say the, the church was in advance of all other institutions. St. Augustine is the site of the first Christian church in what would become the United States. As Michael Gannon points out, St. Augustine is also the site of our country's first school, first hospital, first court of law, first market, and first city plan. As the Franciscan missionaries tried to convert the Tamuquan Indians who inhabited the region, they discovered that the natives had no written language. 
A friar named Francisco Pereja developed a phonetic written version of the Timucuan language, preserving it for us today. Although the Timucuan people no longer exist, Michael Gannon brings their language to life by reciting the first sentences of the Lord's Prayer. Heka itamile numa hiban tema bisa milanema abak wano leta habema balunu nane mima noho boni habe. A bronze plaque at the mission site in St. Augustine shows the locations of dozens of missions scattered throughout Florida and the southeastern portion of North America. The attempts to convert Florida's indigenous peoples met with varied results. The natives were both welcoming and hostile, depending on the tribe. When the first missionary to attempt a pacifist approach to the natives, he being uh, a Dominican friar who landed at Tampa Bay, the Indians were extremely hostile. They killed him at once. And prior to that, when a number of Franciscan friars and secular priests came with the second expedition of Juan Ponce de Leon to Florida in 1521 on the lower Gulf Coast, they were attacked by the Calusa natives of the site and driven back into the sea. So it depends. Uh, in most other particulars, the native peoples were welcoming, particularly in northern Florida. And that's where the Franciscans had their great successes when they came here in, beginning in 1573 and built missions up the Atlantic coast as far as the border between Georgia and South Carolina. And in the early 17th century, they moved westward across the peninsula and were generally welcome wherever they went and created their greatest number of missions up around the Appalachian country uh, centered on present-day Tallahassee. Those natives had been very hostile to earlier Spanish expeditions in the first half uh, of the 16th century, but in the mission century they were very accommodating and welcoming to the Franciscan friars. So it depends. On, on balance, uh, the natives welcomed uh, the Christian religion and its principal exponents, the Franciscans. The native populations were not the only people who the Spanish missionaries tried to influence. As the British began establishing colonies to the north, the Spanish in Florida tried to encourage runaway slaves to embrace Christianity. Michael Gannon. First of all, during the Spanish period, when a large number of African slaves in 1740 and afterwards escaped from British plantations in the Carolinas, passed through Georgia and down to St. Augustine, where they were given their freedom and where Christianity was preached to them and where they were baptized and began to live normal Christian lives alongside their Spanish and Indian uh, cousins. This was the first Underground Railroad as these African-Americans, as you can call them by that date, sought freedom and did so by going to the protection of the Spanish flag and the Christian church. Generally, the slaves from the British plantations were never given the opportunity to learn the Christian religion because it taught the dignity of the individual person. And that's something the slave owners didn't want the slaves to learn about. The Spanish had just arrived in St. Augustine when their Thanksgiving dinner was shared with the Tamuqua on September 8, 1565. 
the Spanish had to do the best they could with leftovers from their long voyage. The menu was a stew of salted pork and garbanzo beans with ship's bread and red wine. While Floridians should proudly proclaim ownership of the first Thanksgiving in what would become the United States, we may want to retain the traditional menu of turkey, stuffing, vegetables, and cranberry sauce. Dr. Michael Gannon first wrote about the real first Thanksgiving in his 1965 book, The Cross in the Sand. We recorded this interview in 2015. He died in 2017. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find discounted books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, in past episodes of Florida Frontiers, we've talked about Floridians who did courageous things, but we haven't used the term hero. I understand that you plan to talk about a woman you describe as a hero. Heroes come in surprising forms, and we don't often use the term hero in connection with the woman's suffrage movement, especially in Florida. But I would suggest that it is an appropriate term to apply to Mary Nolan, a 73-year-old Jacksonville grandmother who went to jail not once, but at least seven times for her support of the right of women to vote. One definition of hero the one I am using here, is someone who does what has to be done. According to historian Judith Poucher, woman suffrage was slow to gain traction in Florida. In 1900, Ella Chamberlain organized a suffrage association in Tampa, but it wasn't until 1912 when 32 Jacksonville women established the Florida Equal Franchise League that the state's women began to think seriously about the right to vote. That same year, several women property owners in Orlando attempted to cast ballots in a local sewer bond election. They were, of course, denied the vote and created a suffrage league the next year. Several attempts were made to enfranchise women through state legislative action, but always fell short. Meanwhile, the National American Woman Suffrage Association gained strength nationally, and like the women in other southern states, Florida suffragists joined the cause. Southern women who joined the NAWSA, according to historian Elna Green, were urban, middle-class, white, college-educated, and evangelical. They pushed hard for the vote, but they retained a sense of decorum and respectability. 
1916, an allied organization, the National Women's Party, led by Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, looked to the example set by British suffragists Emmeline and Sylvia Pankhurst, who adopted a more militant stance and engaged in public confrontations to advance the cause. Determined to enfranchise women through a constitutional amendment, Paul and Burns decided to confront President Woodrow Wilson directly by using his own words in support of worldwide democracy to force him to advocate on behalf of woman suffrage. In January 1917, they and their followers began picketing the White House in an act of nonviolent civil disobedience, for which they were arrested and jailed beginning in June 1917. And how did this shift to a more militant, confrontational strategy affect Florida women? In April 1917, Ella St. Clair Thompson, the Southern Field Secretary of the NWP, came to Florida to organize support. The following month, Alice Paul spoke at Jacksonville, where Floridians created a statewide organization with Mrs. A. Light Monroe of Miami as president, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas as press chair, and Helen Hunt, a law student, as statewide secretary. The least likely of the new members of NWA was Mary Nolan, that 73-year-old grandmother, who, although middle class, did not fit the profile of a typical NWA member. As Poucher explained, Nolan's background contained no college, and her organizational history was limited to promoting libraries for rural communities and membership in the United Daughters of the Confederacy and the Daughters of the American Revolution, not exactly strong reform credentials. But Mary Nolan was all in, as she explained in her subsequent activism, quote, when I first heard about Alice Paul, that they had put her in prison with those others, they were suffering and fighting for all of us. When Mrs. Gold and Ms. Younger asked Florida women to go to Washington to help, I volunteered. Was Mary Nolan prepared to engage in the type of activities the NWP had planned? Not everyone thought so, but Nolan was the only Florida volunteer. Hunt described Nolan as, quote, elderly and not very strong, end quote. Subsequent descriptions would characterize her, quote, as feeble. There was reason to be concerned as Nolan suffered from a leg infirmity, and an NWP official was concerned enough to request that an organizational representative meet her at the train when she arrived in Washington in November. Paul and Rose Winslow had been arrested and began a hunger strike that was addressed with violent forced feedings. On November 10th, 41 women divided into groups of 5 to 14 and picketed the White House. As one group was arrested, another took their place. Mary Nolan led the last group. When she appeared before a judge, he urged her to pay her fine and avoid incarceration at the Aquacon Workhouse, a notorious institution. Nolan explained her reason for choosing jail time. Quote, Your Honor, she said, I have a nephew who is fighting for democracy in France. He is offering his life for his country. I should be ashamed if I did not join those brave women in their fight for democracy in America, end quote. Although she received the smaller sentence of six days, they were days of terror, as she would write in an article for the Suffragist magazine titled, That Night of Terror, November 14, 1917. 
As Poucher noted, it was valuable because it was the first account published of the events at the workhouse, and it was published within days of the events. Nolan did not go home after her arrest and incarceration. She continued to picket and was arrested several additional times as picketing continued until the fall of 1918. She attended mass meetings in the Washington-Baltimore area and was party to a lawsuit against the administrators of Aquacon Workhouse. In one of her last court appearances, Nolan said, quote, I am old, I guess, but if I were a hundred, I would do just as I am doing now. I am willing to use every drop of life left in me to push this fight to the end, end quote. The end came quickly. In May 1919, both houses of Congress passed the constitutional resolution that sent the 19th Amendment to the states for ratification. Neither Florida Senator Park Trammell nor Duncan Fletcher voted for woman suffrage, and Florida did not take action to ratify the amendment in 1919. The state finally ratified the amendment 50 years later in 1969. Mary Nolan went home, a hero, who would later be honored by Jacksonville members of the National Organization of Women, but as yet, not by the state of Florida. You can read Judith Poucher's article on Mary Nolan in the Florida Historical Quarterly, Volume 95, Number 2, Fall 2016. Mary Nolan was definitely a hero. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. Tom Touchton has an extensive collection of Florida maps on display at the Tampa Bay History Center. Holly Baker has more. The Tampa Bay History Center in Tampa, Florida, houses the Touchton Map Library and Florida Center for Cartographic Education that contains thousands of maps, charts, and other documents of Florida from the 16th century to the early 21st century. It's the only cartographic center in the southeastern United States. Thomas Touchton, one of the founders of the Tampa Bay History Center, donated more than 5,000 Florida maps from his personal collection to the Tampa Bay History Center, making possible the establishment of the Touchton Map Library and Florida Center for Cartographic Education. I recently talked with Thomas Touchton when he stopped by the Library of Florida History to take a look at our extensive map collection. He told me that his interest in Florida maps began in London, England, nearly 40 years ago. Our map collecting began uh, 39 years ago when my wife and I were in London for her 40th birthday. And we went to a neighborhood antique fair, and I was always looking for books. But there were no book dealers, but there was a young map dealer with some maps pinned on the walls, and I asked him what he did, and he said, I sell maps. And I said, who buys maps? Uh, and he didn't have any other customers, so he spent about an hour talking with me about maps, and I was clearly hooked, and I began collecting Florida maps the next day and have been collecting Florida maps for 39 years. Many of the maps, charts, atlases, and other cartographic materials in the Touchdown Map Library's collection are digitized and available to view on the Tampa Bay History Center's website. 
It is called the Touchton uh, Map Collection, and it is in the map library at the Tampa Bay History Center in Tampa. And the uh, Tampa Bay History Center has been very fortunate to get a couple of conservation grants from Hillsborough County that we have used to digitize all of the collection and to put the maps on the Tampa Bay History Center's website so someone can go to the Tampa Bay History Center website and put your cursor over exhibits and then scroll down and you'll have an opportunity to view the map collection and there are almost 6,000 images on that website. I asked Thomas Touchton which map in the collection is his favorite. As to favorites, oh my goodness, well it's like which of your children do you love the most? I have coastal charts and plans of developments that did not happen and plans of developments that did happen and maps of theme parks and railroads and highways and air control lanes in the sky and town plans and I think maybe my favorite map is an 1861 bird's eye view of Florida by a man named John Bachman and uh, it is as if you are looking at the state of Florida from oh I guess 20 or 30 miles in the air, except John Bachman in 1860-61 couldn't do that. So he had to have in his mind what all of Florida looked like, and he put that in, as I mentioned, what is called a bird's eye view that I think is one of the most interesting and beautiful maps of all of them. The Tampa Bay History Center was established in 2009 by the Hillsborough County Board of County Commissioners. Today, the Tampa Bay History Center includes three floors of permanent and temporary exhibition galleries, exploring 12,000 years of Florida's history. Thomas Touchton. History does not stop at county boundaries, and when Hillsborough County itself was first formed in 1834 by the Florida Legislature, it constituted some or all of what is 22 counties today. So the history that is exhibited and taught at the Tampa Bay History Center is about the greater Tampa Bay area, and of course that includes Pinellas County and Hernando and Pasco County and Polk County and Manatee and Sarasota County. So a number of counties are really part of the story we tell but the museum is located in downtown Tampa, right across the street from the Amelie Arena, which is where the Tampa Bay Lightning plays its hockey games. And there is a lot of development going on around it, and it is operating very successfully. And our approval rating from our visitors is like 95% or something like that. People really like it, and for the first time, really, in the Tampa area's history, there is a history museum where artifacts can be given and education programs can be made available to school students. So there, there's a lot going on there, and I encourage everyone to visit.
To learn more about the Tampa Bay History Center and the Touchton Library and Florida Center for Cartographic Education, go to tampabayhistorycenter.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a happy Thanksgiving. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.